You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Natalie Ashton and Robin McKenna talk about their paper, Situating Feminist Epistemology, published in Episteme in 2018. Natalie is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Stirling, working on the AHRC-funded project Norms for the New Public Sphere. Robin is a lecturer at the University of Liverpool, working mainly in epistemology, philosophy of language, and philosophy of science. In what follows, you'll hear Robin's voice first. Yeah, so I guess um, starting with, in one sentence, what Deborah argues, um, my way of putting it would be that it argues that feminist epistemologies are interestingly radical. So that is, they're radical in the sense that they do reject some standard assumptions in mainstream epistemology, and they're interesting that they have some good reasons for rejecting these assumptions. So they're both controversial, but also plausible. Uh, that's the way I would put it. That's the aim of the paper. So we start off by explaining the hallmarks of traditional epistemological thinking, or what you might call the classical conception of knowledge. And then we compare that to social constructivism, so you have an idea of what the, the opposite view is as well. Then we introduce the two main strands of feminist epistemology and talk about which of these ways of thinking about knowledge they're closest to. So I wrote the section on feminist standpoint theory, and Robin wrote the one on feminist empiricism. And we say that both strands have more in common with the traditional conception than most epistemologists seem to think they do. But we also highlight the places where they differ from this classical conception and they seem to um, side more with social constructivists. And we conclude in the end that the kind of constructivism which can be found in feminist epistemology is a plausible one that we should take seriously. For me, this was my first time working on a paper collaboratively with somebody else. Um, so I haven't got that much to compare to. But, and I was a bit daunted because it is something that in philosophy, I think collaboration doesn't happen as often as perhaps in other disciplines. Um, but I was really surprised at how quickly it came together and how smoothly it all worked, really. Um, I think it did help that we had quite a clear division of labour in terms of like who would write which sections, because we both had um, kind of different, like I, I knew more about standpoint theory and, and Robin knew more about feminist empiricism. So there was kind of a clear division of labour. Um, but yeah, I, I, one thing that I found which was really good was that having somebody else waiting for you to finish your part is a really effective motivator for making sure it happens. So, yeah, that that was pretty good. There's actually, um, if you remember, Natalie, there's kind of like an origin story behind the paper. So Natalie organised a, a reading group on feminist epistemology in Vienna. So we were both postdocs in Vienna at the time. I can't remember who we read exactly. I guess some of the classic stuff like um, Harding, Anderson, Longinock, all of that. Um, I think we were both trying to figure out like what exactly did some people think was so problematic about these views? Like when you read the the published attempts to criticize feminist epistemology, like they're, they struck us as pretty pretty bad. Like it was really hard to see what exactly everyone was getting so angry about. Um, so I guess the paper was like trying to see what exactly someone might find controversial about feminist epistemology uh, using Paul Bogosian and like a very orthodox traditional way of thinking about epistemology as kind of the I mean, if, if this view is not in opposition to feminist epistemology, then, you know, what is going to be in opposition to it? Um, so that was kind of the idea, like kind of seeing what exactly could be so controversial about this general approach. What Gossian tries to do in the book, uh, Fear of Knowledge, I think it's called. Yeah, Fear of Knowledge, uh, is to defend um, a 
quite traditional, some might say quite simplistic picture of knowledge. So roughly there's a world out there that is independent of us. We form beliefs about that world on the basis of the evidence that we have. And these beliefs are justified if they're supported by the evidence. Um, so a very traditional picture of, of knowledge and justification and so on. So on this picture, our social context might influence which beliefs we form and what evidence we have in the first place. But that kind of social stuff is irrelevant whether our beliefs are justified. Um, so Bogossian kind of his strategy for defending this traditional picture is to argue that what he sees as the alternative, the kind of relativistic form of social constructivism uh, about knowledge, is just incoherent. So he kind of says, you know, the alternative would be this kind of social constructivist picture and you can't even make sense of it. Um, and from that he concludes that his traditional picture must be the right one. So the kind of constructivism he's interested in, I guess, is the kind associated with Richard Rorty usually. So this is a view that says that like whether your beliefs are justified depends on the social context, the kind of justified or not justified relative to epistemic frameworks and different people, different societies might have different frameworks. Um, so yeah, as I said, Rorty is the usual target, but he also discusses uh, Kuhn, David Bloor, Nelson Goodman, people like that. Um, so I guess kind of the obvious issue that one might have with this book is that like that's not the choice, right? Like, you don't have to choose between his picture and a kind of radical kind of social constructivism. There are all sorts of uh, positions uh, in between. So the idea was that feminist epistemology, or at least some feminist epistemologies, um, give you one of these positions that are in between, kind of a more nuanced picture of the influence of social context on knowledge and knowledge production. So that's kind of yeah, that's what Bogosian's book says and partly why we chose it as the target. But the other thing is something I said a minute ago that, you know, if you can show that there are some strands of feminist epistemology that are entirely compatible with what Paul Bogosian thinks knowledge and knowledge is like, then surely that's you showing that, like, there's nothing controversial about them, right? So, like, if you can assimilate feminist standpoint theory to um, this classical conception of knowledge, then there really is nothing to be worried about. I mean... It might, it might not be a good thing, but, you know, that's kind of the ultimate demonstration that, that these views are not um, implausible, I would say. There are some really nice things at Bogosian's book because, you know, he's an uh, analytic philosopher and that means that he's very good on uh, nice, neat distinctions. Um, so one is he, ni he nicely distinguishes between, I guess, kind of a metaphysical version of social constructivism. So that's kind of interested in construction of facts versus a more epistemological version that's interested in the question of um, whether um, the, the role of social values and the like in the justification of beliefs. So our interest in the paper is, is in the, the epistemological version of social constructivism, not in the, the metaphysical one. Um, and here he also makes another nice distinction that, I mean, it's not original to him, but he makes it quite nicely between kind of two ways in which you might think that knowledge depends on social factors, one of which is kind of not particularly troubling to someone like Bogosian, the other of which is, is a lot more troubling, the causal constitutive um, social dependence distinction. Um, so Bogosian uh, wants to distinguish between two ways in which two ways in which knowledge might depend on, on social stuff like our needs and interests. So he uses an example to do this. Uh, so he says, you know, we've got an extensive uh, fossil record which provides us with lots of evidence that dinosaurs existed, about what they were like, what they ate, things like that. So we've got lots of knowledge or very justified beliefs about dinosaurs. So you can then ask, you know, to what extent does this knowledge depend on social factors? 
And he says, well, there's a sense in which this knowledge does depend on social factors because there's a broadly social explanation how we came to have the evidence that we have, right? So why do we have this fossil record? Because we were interested in covering it. Um, the authority of the church was not such that we were prevented from digging up all these fossils because, you know, whatever. So there is, you can tell a kind of social story about how we come to have the evidence that we have. Um, so in that sense, that we have this knowledge does depend on social factors. But that's not, you know, a sense of dependence that anyone in epistemology is going to worry about, right? That's just saying that kind of, you know, there can be all sorts of explanations, how we come to have the beliefs that we have and have the evidence that we have that then goes on to justify them. So what social constructivists, as Bogosian sees it, are interested in is a deeper kind of dependence, uh, which we call constitutive dependence. That's not uh, a label Bogosian uses, although he makes the distinction. So this kind of dependence would say that... Um, this fossil record we've uncovered, well, that constitutes evidence, for example, for the existence of the dinosaurs, uh, because of something social. Like, for example, because we accept a scientific worldview that interprets the fossil record as evidence. So that's the kind of thing someone like Rorty would say, right? So, like, he would say that we've got this kind of way of interpreting uh, the fossil record that's influenced by science, and that's why it constitutes evidence for the existence of dinosaurs. Um, so it's important to note that, you know, um, the kind of social constructivist that says that um, there's social dependence in the dinosaur example is a pretty radical kind of social constructivist, right? That's kind of the Rorty view that says that, like, um, all knowledge is socially constructed. Um, what we're interested in uh, with feminist epistemology are more restricted forms of social, social constructivism, which says that, well, in some cases, you have this constitutive kind of dependence uh, of uh, knowledge on social factors, not in the dinosaur example, but, you know, in the kinds of examples that we go on to talk about in the rest of the paper. So we take this distinction from uh, Bogosian um, and then we use it to argue that um, you get an interesting kind of social dependence uh, in some feminist epistemologies. And that's kind of how we try and show that these views can be justifiably interpreted as socially constructivist. So standpoint theory starts with the basic idea, which is key to feminist epistemology more generally, which is that knowledge is situated. And so what this means is that when thinking about who has knowledge and how they have knowledge, we don't try to abstract all of the social elements of a subject situation away from, from that um, understanding. So we're not like disembodied minds that are engaging with pure facts. We're people who have bodies who are embedded in communities and all of this makes a difference to what and how we know. So to put this really simply, and this is how we put it in the paper, the point about situated knowledge is that differences in social situation, so things like a person's race and their gender, make for epistemic differences. So differences in what they justifiably believe or in what they know. And standpoint theorists then build on this key insight from feminist epistemology generally, and they add a further idea, which is the idea of epistemic advantage. And this fills out some more detail about the effects that social differences have on knowledge. So epistemic advantage says that people who are socially oppressed often have epistemic benefits. So people of colour, for example, or white women, might have better justification or knowledge than people who don't experience oppression. And there are some caveats to this idea. So it's not supposed to be absolutely true of everyone. Um, and it's not supposed to happen automatically. It's not like you're born into a 
the identity of a person who is often oppressed and you just automatically um, have this advantage. It's something which has to be worked for and has to be earned. But the rough idea is that social oppression leads to epistemic advantage. Um, so one reason you might think that oppression gives people an epistemic advantage is that being oppressed can give you access to more or better evidence. So in the paper, we talk about Nancy Hartsock's discussion of what she calls the sexual division of labor to make this point about access to evidence. And she was writing in the early 80s and she was only really thinking about white and Western households. So this analysis isn't complete. This definitely leaves some stuff, some important stuff out. Um, but just to kind of summarize roughly her point. So she said that while men traditionally have tended to do what we call productive labor so they go off to the factory and they make boots or cha chairs or whatever um, women typically stay in the home and they participate in what we call reproduct reproductive labor so rather than making objects that you can sell they take care of the family they do the cooking the cleaning that kind of thing and they're kind of constantly maintaining the household and the people within it and so the idea is that obviously the man and the woman in this hypothetical family have different experiences from one another. And so and through that, they have access to different sets of evidence. Um, and Hartsock argues that women have an important advantage when it comes to these two different sets of evidence, because the evidence that they have access to relates to the more fundamental, essential elements of society. So it relates to caregiving. It relates to what it is that we need to make society function. And I kind of glibly summed this up in the paper by saying that women have an epistemic advantage because they have to clean up piss on a regular basis. Um, and I think this is something we've, we've seen recently with the stuff to do with COVID-19, that the people who are um, doing these tasks, which previously you know, the government have been saying are, are non-specialist jobs, like um, caring for people when they're sick and things like that. These are the jobs that are really crucial to making society work. These are the jobs that now that most of us are locked in, you're a key worker if you take part in those kinds of caring roles. So the idea is that, or, or what Hartsock was saying is that the subjective experiences of women or of other people who are oppressed and who do these caregiving roles, um, their subjective experiences as caregivers can affect what they know. Um, and this sounds like kind of a radical claim, which you would probably think wouldn't be compatible with traditional epistemology. It sounds like the stereotypical, like, um, if you haven't really heard much about feminist epistemology, the idea that like women are more in touch with like, I don't know, some mysterious feminine side or something, and that gives them an advantage. It sounds like that kind of a claim. But once you boil it down to just being about having access to different sets of evidence, if you're somebody who does caregiving, you just know more about the basics of how society works. Um, I think, first of all, it sounds like a more plausible idea. But also at that point, it's just social factors affecting justification in the causal sense that Robin was talking about. So this is something which is compatible with the classical conception of knowledge. The caregiver stuff comes from Hartsock and she was trying to make this claim based on the sexual division of labor. And I think there are reasons why that is maybe not the best way to make the distinction, um, even though that's the one that kind of traditionally has been used in this stuff. But I think another example which is maybe a bit clearer 
is if we're thinking about important um important elements of society like sexism and racism or like specific forms of oppression the people that know the most about those forms of oppression are the people that experience them so people who experience racism know what racism looks like and how it takes place and things like that whereas people who don't experience racism who aren't oppressed in that way are much less likely to have a clear idea of that kind of thing i think that's maybe a clearer example the second reason we might think oppression creates an epistemic advantage is that experiencing oppression seems not just to give someone access to different evidence but also to lead to them being able to question important assumptions including assumptions about what counts as evidence so potentially having a different conception of evidence so patricia hill collins has made this point she's argued that black women sociologists have a unique view of sociology uh, because they've been excluded from sociology for such a long time due to racism and sexism so the discipline of sociology wasn't made with black women in mind it was made by and for white men and so certain elements of it are based on false racist and sexist assumptions and black women are especially well placed to identify and critique those in a way that white men perhaps aren't so the example that we use in the paper to make this point is from a different discipline so we talk about an example from behavioral endocrinology so this is people who study the effects of hormones on behavior and a lot of this work is done by observing the behavior of rhesus monkeys in controlled environments so one interesting observation that these researchers have made over the years is that sexual activity amongst rhesus monkeys peaks when the female monkeys are ovulating so at the point when they're most fertile the most likely to be able to conceive um, baby monkeys um, that's when the sexual activity peaks and so for years researchers tried to work out how the male monkeys knew when to initiate uh, yeah when to initiate sex at this optimal time so they tried looking into the possibility of pheromones so maybe like the female monkeys were giving off hormones that the male monkeys could like smell and pick up on or something um, and they, they went down a couple of different routes like that and they just could not find an answer they couldn't figure out how these male monkeys knew when it was the right time to initiate sex and after over 30 years they finally made a breakthrough when eventually people started to realize that the male monkeys didn't know when to initiate sex instead when the female monkeys were ovulating the female monkeys initiated sex so they would go over they would approach the male monkeys they would slap the floor the floor in front of them which is apparently a very sexy behavior in monkeys and they'd like wiggle around seductively and stuff like that so that was why sexual activity peaked at that point it was because of the female monkey's behavior not the male monkey's behavior so that cleared up that confusion about why sexual activity peaked at that point um but then there's been interesting work done by a, an endocrinologist called kim wallen who has claimed that this breakthrough which happened in the mid 70s um, he claims that it was a result of the women's movement and an increase in the number of female graduate students working in the field and he says that that wider cultural shift that happened um, was what made it possible for people to question assumptions about females being passive in sexual um, uh, in sexual dynamics and questioning that helped them to um, realize that what they were 
what they were seeing as evidence and what they weren't seeing as evidence or it helped them to see that the way they were framing the question was wrong for a start but then by questioning that they were able to see new things as evidence so the sexy hand slap that these female monkeys were doing this was first recorded 30 years before this breakthrough was made and it took that long for these que- for these assumptions to be questioned and for um, that to then be taken up as evidence. So we use this example to show um, how questioning values in this way or how the importance of questioning values in this way to knowledge makes this kind of theory incompatible with the classical conception of justification. Uh, so on this kind of view, we don't just see observations like the hand slap as kind of pure data and that's just we don't just see it as um, evidence that we can access and that different people can access in different ways but it's a case where what we consider to be evidence what our conception of evidence is changes because those researchers had access to that hand slap information everyone had that available to them for a long time but it wasn't until the values were questioned that um that they were able to see it as evidence these kinds of examples from science are really interesting because once you look back at them and show that look this is something that's now widely accepted everyone accepts that that hand slap is evidence of um of the the female monkeys initiating sex um and it and it's easy to look back and say that the assumptions that people made before were just kind of silly and unjustified but that's ignoring the fact that for 30 years that was how that that was a key assumption of that discipline and that guided all sorts of research projects for decades this isn't something that we talked about in the paper and it's it's not like this isn't the main point we wanted to make but it's just kind of relevant to this so i'm going to say it anyway um but so in in kim wallen's description of like how this change happened in this field he he points out that this kind of breakthrough moment the reason it happened is this breakthrough moment with the publication of one paper was because one of the kind of i think there were like three two or three like main kind of patriarchs in this discipline and one of them published something that had this new term which created conceptual space for female monkeys to be active rather than passive in in sexual encounters and the um, I don't think he explicitly says this, but the impression I got was that this is something that people had kind of slowly started to realise and was being talked about anyway, but it wasn't something that people were able to talk about until this paper was published where this big patriarch guy was like, here is the word we have to talk about this. And then it kind of opened the floodgates for that to be the understanding. So that like this isn't this is kind of orthogonal, but like it does I, th- I think that's kind of interesting for thinking about whether it was justified before or after and what it takes for something to be justified. Like you had to have one of the the big kind of well-known established guys in the field say this for it to be something that could even become justified or could be considered to be justified. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, in the... In feminist epistemology, there's usually a distinction made between what Natalie just talked about, feminist standpoint theory, and feminist empiricism. And, and whether these two approaches are 
really distinct uh, is an open question. They're certainly not incompatible. I mean, you could have both. Um, so it's not a kind of like, you know, you either have standpoint theory or empiricism. It's kind of just two tendencies that um, manifest themselves in various ways. Anyway, um, feminist empiricism is uh, a sort of naturalized epistemology in, in quite a sense. So naturalized epistemologists are interested in the process of knowledge production, right? And more generally, kind of the process of inquiry, how we go about inquiring. So they're not so much interested in abstract questions to do with what knowledge or justification is. Um, that's, that's not their focus. They're asking, you know, how do we go about getting knowledge? Um, how might we get more of, more of it? You know, how might we improve our ways of inquiring into the world around us? So feminist empiricism essentially adds some stuff to naturalized epistemology as you find it in someone like Quine and the tradition growing out of Quine. So one thing it adds is that it's interested I guess in kind of like social production of knowledge. So it's interested in groups producing knowledge. It's also interested in the social context in which knowledge is produced. So it's not as Quine kind of wanted us to do, kind of imagining an individual in a lab looking at things and getting like stimuli in their heads or whatever. Um, so for example, a feminist empiricist is going to be interested in things like the gender of the researcher who's gathering survey evidence because they might think that that actually makes a difference, right? So whether it's a woman that's interviewing you or a man might make a difference to the kind of answer that you give to questions, and that could make all sorts of differences um, in the end to the kind of theory that you are going to form on the basis of the survey evidence that you collect. So they're interested in social context of knowledge production. And the second thing is that they're interested in the role that social and political values play in the production of knowledge. Um, so this is not just kind of an interest in what we've been talking about with um, uh, this uh, episode in the history of endocrinology and looking at monkeys. So, you know, it's not just kind of situations where um, some kind of bias or prejudice um, kind of slows down the, the growth of knowledge. It's also cases where um, what look like political feminist considerations um, have played a, a positive role in the development of science and ultimately in the production of scientific knowledge. So this is in sharp contrast to Quine because Quine, of course, has a very, very strong fact value distinction. So he thinks that like, you know, values don't have a role to play in a naturalized epistemology, whereas for the feminist empiricist, um, uh, values uh, can be perfectly legitimate, um, which is not to say that, you know, you can just throw your values in whenever you want. Uh, they have lots of discussion of uh, legitimate and illegitimate uses of values, but um, I don't think there's a problem in principle with um, bringing values into, into science. That's kind of abstract, I guess. I was trying to think about a nice simple example uh, to kind of show what a feminist empiricist approach to a concrete question would be. So this is drawing on some work by Elizabeth Anderson. Um, so she has a nice paper talking about uh, like research into divorce. So a question you might frame in divorce research would be like, does divorce make people happier or not? Right. So a research question that you might have. So a feminist empiricist uh, kind of thinking about this is going to think that, uh, for instance, the gender of researchers carrying out surveys, asking divorcees about their experiences is going to matter, right? So like a woman might get uh, very different responses to a divorcee to a man, uh, for instance. And so the quality of evidence might differ. Um, so I think that's important to kind of evaluating the research and kind of it's a consideration to have when deciding how to conduct your research. Like maybe you shouldn't just have like, you know, men asking questions. Um, and they're going to also be thinking about uh, the values implicit in different ways you might frame divorce, right? So like you might kind of 
frame divorce as being the breakup of a family, or you might frame it as being kind of a transformation to the family unit. Like either way of framing it, um, you know, obviously there are values informing that way of framing it. Um, and um, you know, you, you can't really avoid uh, a value-laden way of framing an issue like this. I mean, this is kind of uh, the point that Anderson wants to kind of generalize this point to most and be all social scientific research, right? You can't kind of avoid uh, values infringing on the way in which you frame these issues. Um, so the important thing to do is to think about uh, which values are legitimate to use, which framings are appropriate versus inappropriate, and kind of think about, um, ultimately for the feminist empiricist, it's a kind of empirical question, which way of framing something like divorce is, is, is correct, right? So like, you know, if you think about divorce as the breakup of a family unit, you can ask, well, does that lead to good research on divorce? versus thinking about it in terms of a transformation of the family unit. And she thinks that you can give an empirical argument that the, the second, I guess, more feminist way of framing it is, is more productive and results in better quality research into divorce and its effects. Um, so yeah, so that's feminism person. It's difficult, if not impossible, to frame your question in a neutral way. To kind of frame your question in a way that doesn't involve you to making any value assumptions. Like, and they, they think that this is going to extend to quite a lot of science, not just social science, but also biology. So the example Natalie had of the rhesus monkeys is a perfect example of that, actually. Like, so clearly, certain assumptions about sex were uh, integral to a way of framing um, the research question that turned out to be very unproductive. Um, so this is not just going to apply in social sciences, although it will probably, you know, usually or most usually apply in social sciences. You, you, you can't keep values out of the way that you frame questions. Um, and that point applies to everyday life, right? Like, you know, um, I, mean, I was thinking about it in the context of politics. So um, I was thinking about kind of um, the importance we attach to neutrality in political journalism. So the idea that like, you know, as a journalist, your, your role is to kind of try and frame an issue for your readers in a neutral way and then like present the various, you know, possible options in a neutral way and like not take sides. Um, so kind of if you apply the, the kind of the feminist critique of the kind of value-free ideal and the philosophy of science to that, and then what you get is a kind of you know critique of this um, pretense to neutrality because like you can't like, you just can't frame these things in a, in a neutral way. It's just not possible. Um, you know when you're conducting inquiries, it's very hard to keep values out of them, and it's not clear why it would make them better inquiries if you did. Um, so the crucial question becomes like you know. Well, given this, what is the right way to involve uh, values in your inquiry? So I think it's fair to say that in a lot of the literature and also in our paper, a lot of attention is put or a lot of focus is put on the idea of the underdetermination of theory by evidence. Quickly, the, the basic picture that we're working with here. So this is a picture that we'll let Longino take from the philosophy of science. I mean, I think some people question it, but it's pretty standard. It's not, you know, like radical or anything like that. Um, so this picture says that uh, you've got, you know, your body of scientific evidence, and often that's not going to, you know, you support one theory. It's going to support quite a lot of theories, and the question is which one is the right theory to choose. Um, and like people like Bogosian make a lot of the fact that like it's not going to support just any old theory. Um, but like, that's not really what Longino are saying. They're saying that, like, well, you know, sh you know, sure, some theories are just crazy and we can ignore them. But um, it's going to be consistent with lots of interesting theories that are very, very different and have a kind of different take on how the, the world works. Um, 
So anyway, um, the thought then is that you need to use uh, values to decide between these theories. So you might, for instance, argue that theory one is better than theory two because they both explain the same data, but theory one is simpler than theory two. So we should accept theory one. And you know, you might kind of use this as part of an argument that those who accept theory one are justified in, in doing so. So what Longina wants to do is she wants to say that what she calls feminist values are often more are often preferable to more traditional values like simplicity. Just a couple of things. So she doesn't claim that they're always better. She just claims that they're sometimes better. Um, and she calls the values I'll talk about in a second feminist, not because they have any kind of inherent connection to feminism, but because uh, as a matter of empirical fact, they have tended to be propounded by people with feminist commitments. Um, so their connection to feminism for her is completely contingent. So there's no potential connection there at all. Um, I think that's quite important to seeing kind of why she calls these feminist values at all, given that there's like no, there isn't actually an obvious connection with, with feminism. Um, so what are our values? Uh, well, yeah, the ones uh, uh, we can focus on uh, are empirical novelty. So the idea that it's good if a theory is innovative or new. Um, complexity, kind of complexity both in the kind of in your metaphysics, kind of like having like complicated things out there, um, but also in kind of explanatory mechanisms. So not looking for kind of one simple law that explains everything, but recognizing that maybe it's better to have like a bunch of different explanations for quite similar phenomena rather than trying to unify the whole thing. Um, and applicability to human needs, which is kind of a bit like fruitfulness, but a kind of feminist version of it where you're kind of saying, well, you know, uh, it's kind of important that it serves the needs of everyone, um, not just, you know, uh, the privileged class in society, because often fruitfulness is, you know, serves the needs of the privileged class in society. Um, and to these, she adds empirical adequacy, which she thinks is kind of essential. So she thinks any viable theory has to fit with the available evidence. Um, this is kind of very simply why Violet Longinose doesn't kind of run foul of this idea that like facts don't care about your feelings because like she doesn't think that you can just decide what to think um whatever you think has to fit with the, the data it's just that the data fits with lots of things that you could think and then the other values you just talked about can play a role in um making the decisions um so yeah that's kind of her picture um and in terms of like what makes them good is that they work um so the point is that for Longino and anderson you can look uh, back at um, the past 50 years in science and you can see multiple ways in which uh, the feminist movement has improved certain parts of science as science has produced better theories. Um, so their argument is, this is why it's empiricism, their argument's empirical. Uh, the claim is that as a matter of empirical fact, um, the involvement of feminist values in science has often made science better as science. I mean, you know, good politically as well, uh, but that's not the argument. The argument is that it's been good for science. It's resulted in more knowledge. We don't think that constructivism has to be seen as a bad thing. Um, so one way to help see how constructivism can be unproblematic is to make a distinction between global constructivism and restricted constructivism. So you could be a global constructivist and think that all kinds of um, concepts are constructed. Or, and, and that's the kind which is more difficult to defend. Or you could be a restricted constructivist and think that just certain things are constructed. So at the least, or at the, the less controversial end, um, money is something which is socially constructed. 
um, you might think that gender is something socially constructed. And then you can go up to to um, other kinds of things, which it's it's more controversial that they are socially constructed. And so, yeah, so we think that that the form of constructivism, which is present in the feminist epistemologies that we talk about, is a restricted form. So it's less problematic for that reason. Um, did you have anything to add on that point, Robin? Yeah, I mean, so like just to say a bit more, but the last thing Natalie said, so one thing that Natalie talks about in the section on standpoint theory is that um, like standpoint theory usually is seen as primarily applying to knowledge of the social world, like knowledge of social relations. And that might be, you know, that might actually cover a lot of our knowledge, but um, it's still circumscribed in that way. So the the kind of the class of knowledge that would be claimed as socially constructed is restricted to knowledge of the social world. Um, feminist empiricism, I mean, it, it, it very much grows out of the philosophy of science. So the focus is generally on scientific knowledge and within scientific knowledge, it's, often but not always on social scientific knowledge um, and when it's on natural scientific knowledge it tends to be biology um, rather than say like fundamental physics so uh, and Anderson Elizabeth Anderson has a nice line in the Stanford Encyclopedia article on feminist epistemology where she says that like you know feminists are not interested in arguing that our knowledge that two plus two equals four is socially constructed um, they don't think that's a good paradigm for knowledge in general like they think that you know a better paradigm for knowledge in general is like you know your knowledge so that your boss is a creep or something like that. I think a, a lot of the resistance to feminist epistemology is based on a failure to recognize that when when they talk about like knowledge being situated, like in, in part this is like kind of a an injunction to like focus on situated knowledge, right? So like, yeah, okay, there's things like our knowledge that two plus two equals four. Um, but like to construct a general theory of knowledge, treating that as the paradigm, I mean, I mean it's not wrong, but there's a sense in which you've chosen the phenomena you're going to focus on because it's going to be very tough to extend that a theory of knowledge that's constructed on that basis to the kind of knowledge that feminists, epistemologists are, are interested in. Like, it's just, it's just not going to work, right? I mean, there's very different things. It's, yeah, okay, so this is interesting. It's, it's quite difficult to find good literature, like, in philosophy and in epistemology that's criticising feminist epistemology. There's like, there are criticisms which are sort of a little bit surface level and, and don't really properly engage with the work, I think don't engage with the work sort of in good faith. Um, and then there's, yeah, then there's kind of lots of discourse like on the internet and like, I don't know, Ben Shapiro and facts don't care about your feelings and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I guess this paper, in practical terms, I don't know if this paper can be a bridge and can can help that kind of thing because, like, I don't think Ben Shapiro is going to read this paper, and if he if he did, I don't know <laughs> whether he would engage with it in the way that we might hope. But yeah, I think some of the stuff we say in this paper, um, so we emphasise how both versions of feminist epistemology that we talk about, although they are social constructivist, neither of them ever um disregards the evidence entirely so in the case of feminist empiricism um it's interested in so if we've if we've got several possible theories that are all empirically adequate so they all meet the evidence which of those theories should we should we choose between 
um, which, which one should we favor? Um, so that doesn't go against the evidence. It's all theories that have already met our evidential standards. Um, and then with feminist standpoint theory, again, it doesn't ever contradict evidence. It's more a case of thinking about how we interpret evidence and how people interpret evidence in different ways. So I think there is part of what we're talking about there is connected to this issue of like facts don't care about your feelings and that kind of thing that you hear about in practical terms I have no idea if it if it could uh help ameliorate that issue but yeah it definitely is it definitely touches upon it that's it for today's episode visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about natalie ashton and robin mckenna their work and some of the resources mentioned in this episode special thanks to two cheers for creating our theme music and to christopher mcdonald for sound engineering